0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Max. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs player analysis, game
1: breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband,
0: and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly.
1: Michael Kist, Benjamin Solak, It's the Kist and Solak show, presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kist and Solak Show, Episode 45, brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. It's K I S two. What?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's your last name, Mike.
1: <laughs> I have spelled my name no less than. 15,000 well,
0: times. Welcome to the stew? That is the
1: first time ever.
0: You sound it sounds like a gamer tag or something <laughs> cool where you lose you use numbers and letters to spell a name.
1: <laughs> so follow me on Twitter at Kist NFL. That's K-I-S-T. I can't believe we got that on audio too. That's brilliant. Back from a brief hiatus. Some call it a vacation, I called it abandonment, but he is still the best doggone co-host in the game. I don't care what anyone says. He is Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S O L A K. Ben, it's been 10 days since we last spoke wow, and you, you can can been tell counting. my life is spiraling out of control.
0: <laughs> How Man, you doing, brother? I'm, of course I'm I am. so well. I did not enjoy being on vacation. I I struggle to take vacations in general. Um I like to I like to be working. I I get guilty when I'm not working, which is bad. But um It was good. It was necessary for me to like get away from college for for a, a bit and go home and eat food. And do less work. So it was it was it was necessary. I got the home stretch now, I got finals before winter break. So uh I know, I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope your your Thanksgiving was well and I appreciate everybody holding it down for me while I while I got a much needed respite. From the football world of course now I spent a whole week not caring about the Eagles and like you know doing work and they put together a 19 point comeback to keep their postseason hopes alive and I'm just right back in it it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah I told you I've given up on this season no less than four times and and they pull me right back in every time because I I just can't give up hope quite yet and we're going to talk about that but first I want to mention that the topic of this show of course is going to be the all 22 review of the Eagles comeback Against the Giants, 25-22 final, Eagles pull it out, move to 5-6, and six, and that puts them in the race, and this is the first thing that I wanted to talk about, Ben, in your seven things that we learned piece on BleedingGreenNation.com about this Eagles-Giants game, your second note was that, quote, the Eagles season isn't over at all, unquote. Mm-hmm. Mind if I kick it over to you to explain the math on all that and how there's a simple and very possible path for the Eagles to make it into the playoffs?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like what we said uh, after the the uh, the Cowboys game where it was like, man, they really needed to win this in order to stay competitive and potentially win the division. And then all of a sudden, oh, I, I think – either just before that game or immediately following that game, I can't remember, but there was the Alex Smith injury. And obviously the Redskins were in the driver's seat of the division up to that point. And really what that Alex Smith injury does is, is if it lets you really wash the, the, the Redskins out of contention, which uh, barring this upcoming game against the Eagles, you might be able to do. If they lose to the Eagles on Monday Night Football this upcoming week, week 13, then really the Redskins are going to be at a point where they're 6-6, six and six. Uh, they have two losses, back-to-back losses in the division. That'll make them two and two in the division. Uh, it's going to be tough for them to compete with uh, the Cowboys, who are currently six and five, and then the Eagles, who would also be six and six. So let's let's look at it this way. As things currently stand before Thursday night, before Monday Night Football, before all that, uh, Redskins and Cowboys are both six and five. The Cowboys have the advantage. They're three and one in the division, and the, the Skins are only two and one. Philadelphia is five and six, but they are two and one in the division. Now the let's let's assume what should happen happens, which is that the the Del, the Dallas Cowboys lose to the New Orleans Saints on Thursday night. You should imagine that the right. Saints are going to be them. The Saints are playing better than anybody else in the league right now.
1: By the way, I would be very upset if this if the if the Cowboys come right. out and they, like the, the Saints lay a stinker because they can even play bad and they'll still hit the over like they did against the Falcons.
0: Right. My my main thing like like um. If either of these two conditions don't happen that I'm about to list, then screw it. Season's over. But assuming right. week 13 plays out how we expect it to, well, things are going to, you know, there's going to be a, a conversation here. And that's because uh, the Saints beat Dallas. That makes Dallas 6-6 six six overall, 3-1 three and, three and one in the division. Philadelphia beats the Redskins. Led by Colt McCoy, Philadelphia is currently about a touchdown favorite. Despite all the struggles this season, a touchdown favorite in Philadelphia, their touchdown favorite. Philadelphia wins that game. Now you have the Cowboys and the Eagles are both six and six, and both mm-hmm. three and one in the division, Mike. And let's just let's just scrap the Redskins. Let's pretend like they don't matter anymore. Okay. Well, obviously Philadelphia's already dropped one to Dallas, so that still puts Dallas at the top uh, of the of the pecking order here. But that game, which will be a, a Sunday, I'd imagine it gets flexed to Sunday Night Football. That Week 14 game, Eagles Cowboys in Dallas, is basically for the division. Right. Because you're going to have a point where the winner of that game is going to be seven and six overall, four and one in the division. If it's Dallas, Dallas will have. Every tiebreaker over the Eagles at that point. Because even if Dallas drops their, their last divisional game to the Giants, and the, and the Eagles win their last divisional game and they win out, the Cowboys have the, the tiebreaker because they beat the Eagles twice. So pretty much if Dallas yeah. wins that, you can write it pretty much in ink. Dallas beats the Eagles in Week 14. Dallas is winning that division unless, like, literally chaos hits. Okay. Right. But if Philadelphia wins that Dallas game, which they will be coming into that Dallas game on a two-game win streak, both divisional games, and with renewed hope for the season that they thought they had already lost when they lost to Dallas the first time. They're out looking for revenge. They win that game, Mike. They're seven and six overall, four and one in the division. And they can even drop one of the Los Angeles Rams and Houston Texans games. But if they win out, if they win two of the next three, they still have yeah. to be the Redskins. Win two of the next three, they win the division. Now, obviously, Houston and Los and Los Angeles are both playing very well. I think Houston's a little bit worse than the eight and three team they currently are made up to be eight game win streak but dallas even has a tough game against the colts coming up dallas drops that game philadelphia could lose both of the texans and the rams game beat the redskins and eight and eight and they would still have the tiebreaker over the cowboys because they'll end up with a five and one divisional record to the cowboys four and two divisional record so really very simply it's this beat the redskins duh and then beat the cowboys right two games Divisional games, opponents you know well, teams that Carson Wentz has beaten many times before, Doug Peterson has beaten many times before. Win those two, and you're at a point where you're pretty much in the driver's seat, and it would take a significant implosion yeah. to lose out that division. So the Philadelphia Eagles season is, is really the next two games, and really you should just say uh they should beat the Redskins handily. It's just the the the, the week 14 game against the Cowboys. It's for the division. The winner of that game's win uh, playoff percentage is going to go through the roof. So this is, oh, this, this, this just bumbling, awful disappointment, confusion of a season is basically just boiling down in the next two weeks. Philadelphia can still break the, the streak, win the division two times in a row if they just win the next two games against beatable opponents.
1: Just when I thought I was out, they pull me right? back in, Ben. <laughs> so that is the path for the Eagles. And of course, you know, get getting there, you have to take care of the division and all that. But there's a clear and uh, not not necessarily simple in execution, but you can see it. It's a simple plan to get to the playoffs for the Eagles. So this upcoming game with the Redskins means a ton. And I know it's only Colt McCoy, but this Eagles team hasn't been the most consistent team in the world. So you hope they can take care of business. But we'll be dealing with that later on in the week. Today, we're going to take a look back at the All-22, the coaches film of this Giants-Eagles game, the first thing I want to do, Ben, is I want to hand out a game ball. I'm going to hand out my game ball to Malcolm Jenkins. Well,
0: I'm shocked.
1: The heart and soul of this defense. I mean, it's obvious. He had the best game of any player in this game. This dude put the Eagles secondary on his back. And not only that... I mean, you can see him getting pre-snap when you watch the film, the defensive backs lined up and the linebackers as well, because you've got either an inexperienced group and in Camus Grugier-Hill and Nathan Gary out there. And then you have Nigel Bradham, who is playing his position from last year due to the injury to Jordan Hicks. And you can see on film Jenkins doing everything that he can pre And post snap, getting dudes lined up, moving them in the right direction after the snap, seeing the game really well, knowing his keys, being around the ball all game. And he changed the tide in this game in a couple of ways. First, it was him stepping up as the vocal leader of this defense by going to Jim Schwartz and telling him he needed to simplify the calls play more base. And you saw some split field coverages early where they were playing man to the field and shout out to Nick Turchin at T Maniac21. He's a great follow. He's a right over at cover one and inside the pylon. He's covering it from the Giants angle, but me and him have been bouncing back and forth on Twitter breaking this game down because it was a really fun game to watch coach versus coach. Um but he pointed that out and uh it, it was after when Jenkins stepped in, it was after the 20 yard throw to Rhett Ellison, the tight end for the Giants. For those of you following along at home that was at second quarter, 519 in the second. So the Giants motion Sterling Shepard to a wing position between the right tackle and Ellison. The Eagles uh, use this look, the same look that the Giants are using a lot in the second half with Aguilar and use them as a blocker like that. So Channon Sullivan sees the inside stem from Shepard, which is directed at Malcolm Jenkins, who is in the box. He sees the play fake, which is away from his side. And I think Channon thinks he's like crack replacing here. But instead, Shepard then releases vertical. This causes Jenkins, who sees Chandon like flying in front of him to react and try to take that vertical. And it leaves a wide open throw to Ellison in the flat. So it's a communication a, a breakdown there. And that's reportedly the play where Jenkins had had enough and went to Schwartz. And it was almost too late because two plays later, you get the 51 yard touchdown run from Barkley where Brandon Graham and Craven and the block uh, were in the same gap on that play. And these plays are all up on my piece on bleedinggreennation.com. So give that article a read. But after that adjustment, you have a defense that only allowed three points and 56 yards uh, in the second half. So Mm -hmm. including the interception by Jenkins, that was the other thing that turned the tide at the end of the half. They were in Tampa 2 with Jenkins playing that middle deep zone and in the press conference after the game. Pat Shermer said he didn't expect the Eagles to play that soft in his zone there. So they got the Giants guessing wrong. Uh, They got them trying to take a shot. And it really turned the tide because they go in a half down eight points instead of 11. And you got to think with the way that the Eagles attacked with the running game in the second half, they would have had less time to do so coming into the second half down two scores. So some serious butterfly effect stuff going on here. And it was all spurred by Jenkins. Big-time performance, that's what you need from your veteran leadership, game ball to Malcolm Jenkins, and since Malcolm isn't here to accept the official Kiston Solak game ball, I'm understanding that Ben- The
0: official? The official, because we've done it for so many games?
1: Yes, correct. You'll, you'll be accepting on his behalf.
0: <laughs> Dave Zangaro of NBC Sports Philly tweeted out what I think is the most impressive Malcolm Jenkins stat, info, signifier, whatever you want, which is that- um. Since he joined the Eagles in 2014, Jenkins has played 5,248 of 5,339 defensive snaps. Wow. That's 98.3% of the defensive snaps that have existed since he got here. He has played 5,248. He has missed 89. (laughs) And that's at (laughs) various positions that's at safety, nickel corner, linebacker. Right. That is insane. Bananas. B A N A N. AS. I mean I, we, we, avail- say it, we say the best exactly.
1: availability.
0: We say it during draft time it's still it still holds during the season the best ability is availability, especially when <laughs> everybody else is hurt. Injured. <laughs> and so it's very nice that he's out there and he can at least get people organized. Man, there were multiple times uh, with Jordan Hicks out as well, where you saw Nigel Bradham, uh Malcolm Jenkins, and then shout out Camus Hill, who's not even really a starter, but constantly. Putting players back where they belong. The play where Nate Gary had no idea what he was doing and Camus was trying to shove him back into place was killing me. There are multiple plays where Bradham or Camus had to go pick up where Gary was supposed to be because Gary had no idea where he was going. Um, and I was impressed by, uh, I was impressed by Grouchet Hill, uh, especially for having a good sound yeah. understanding of defensive responsibilities, various linebacker role and alignments, especially for a guy who doesn't really start. You can see why the coaching staff likes him in that regard. Uh, and it was nice to see Tim- Timmy Jernigan back on the field. He wasn't super impactful but he wasn't ty mcgill and so really huge boost massive. because mcgill massive. and trayvon hester saw less snaps and that in and of itself massive victory
1: the uh funny play for me ben 12 15 left second and six
0: i'm pretty sure i know exactly what play you're talking about
1: yeah they, they come it's the with the little, the heavy like set.
0: tight end switch release or something
1: yeah, the tight end comes on a leak, and Nate Gary is looking at him. He's looking at the tight end It's going <laughs> vertical. He's right by him, and he points to Cam- to Camus, and Camus like already gone no. into the flat for his threat. And Bradham's like pointing at him in the middle of the play like, no, you're on him, dude. You're on him. Just hilarious. I put it up on my uh, my timeline at Michael Kista the NFL. There yep. were so many different communication breakdowns. Yeah, you know, it just-
0: kills me about that particular play is that the Giants are in 22 personnel. And they've got yeah. two tight ends, two Chan and Sullivan's side. There's no wide receiver out there. And Sullivan sneaks way up into the formation to offer run support. And what's the very first play the Giants do on the next drive it's the one you mentioned, where yep. they go ahead. This time, I think they're in t- just pure 12 personnel. It might yeah. be 11. They motion a player in to give Sullivan the same look. And yep. this time, they release him right up Sullivan's zone. And Sullivan's running into to offer run support. It's play action. And that's the big space that Sullivan gives up. And so, Correct. yeah, uh, it's <laughs> not hard. Moral of the story, it is not hard to pick on Shannon Sullivan. Uh he doesn't exactly know where he's going, which you couldn't have expected more of him from that. And I'm glad that Jenkins did that veteran move of being able to tell the coordinator what's really happening on the field and then yeah. uh help help Schwartz calibrate and, and dumb things down. It was funny, Mike. It, I really felt like things came full circle because Philadelphia simplified the coverages, ran two basic shells, and found great success on defense. And the crazy, crazy thing is that it was the same basic shells, uh, inverted Tampa 2 and cover 3 that we hated Jim Schwartz for using the entire (laughs) Tennessee game, right? Like we, in my opinion, after that game, I was like, this is what lost us the Tennessee games. He just played this stuff way too much. And then he threw out a a ton of inverted Tampa 2 in the second half, and I was like, this is the best defensive game plan I have (laughs) ever seen. It just goes to prove how much circumstance kind of changes what you expect from a coordinator.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and speaking of the Giants, because look, Eli wasn't going to threaten us like that, but I didn't understand, and a lot of people don't understand, and they're asking about this, so we might as well talk about it, yeah. uh, the usage of Saquon Barkley in the second half. And after the game, Pat Shermer tried to explain it by saying that they wanted to spell Barkley a little bit with Wayne Gallman, and I get that part. So they did that on the first series when they came out of the half. But they're so unimaginative – with him in the passing game, that when they get behind the sticks, and that's another reason that Shermer cited being off schedule, uh, that Barkley can completely disappear from the game plan, and that's just unacceptable when he is the driving force behind your offense, especially with what we saw in the last couple of weeks when they came out of the bye, mm-hmm. heavy play action, heavy use of Saquon, and then even getting him involved in the receiving, you know, as a receiver more than they had in the past. It's still not enough, and, and not only that, like like the play action, I highlight this because the Eagles struggle. Against it so much, and the previous week the Giants had used play action 60 percent of the time, and they were very successful with it, 10 for 10, 155 yards and a touchdown. In this game, they used it 23 percent of the time, and, and you look at the with Hicks out, and we we, we just highlighted the play that was play action. And Nathan Gary is completely lost. We highlighted a play where Shannon Sullivan is completely lost and, you know, they're building colonies on the moon half the time. But I was shocked and thankful that they did not utilize it more because I felt if they gave Eli time, because, of course, on play action, you're altering the pass pass rush path and adding extra blockers. If they gave him time and gave Odell some time and space to operate that it was just going to be a disaster for the Eagles' uh, defense continuing on. So as much as we can praise the defense for turning on the light bulb in the second half, some of this falls directly on Pat Shermer and the way that they're utilizing Barkley and the way that they're setting things up for Eli, even though Eli mm-hmm. is still bad. I want to make that clear. Both can be true. Uh, but that's all fine by me because I have zero issue taking joy in a rival having these types of issues, and they're going to continue to have them, in my opinion. I hear
0: that. I also uh, I uh had the odd and, and kind of gross experience of being like, man, I really empathize for Giant fans dropping this game because it felt very much so the way like Philadelphia the dropped a lot of games earlier in the season. Obviously, they had a big lead in the third quarter, and then it was just stupid little execution stuff. Just yeah. like, you know, miss block on a wide receiver screen that ends up making it a three-yard loss instead of a 10-yard gain. Oh, there's like a, a delay of game. It makes it – or a false start makes it first and 15, and then there's a drop. So instead of second and five, it's second and 15. Just like little stupid stuff where one player, different guy every time, is making a mistake, and it's just totally killing your momentum. It's making like it impossible to string together any drives. Philadelphia did their best to give – New York's some momentum back uh with with some you know some stalling drives there near midfield, um, but no, I felt very much so like uh there was a lot of just like silly execution stuff like there was a there was many many timelines where Shermer's not getting questioned about his Wayne Gallman usage at all because they just pick up one or two extra first downs, so the the reality is that Philadelphia did get some help to eke away with this one, but every team needs some help to eke away with a game. It's how it goes, oh, yeah. you know what matters here is that Philadelphia is the first opportunity not the first opportunity. Philadelphia has their best opportunity this season to string together two wins in a row, which they have right. not yet done. And I think that's a big hill for them to get over if they can pull that off. Home game, Monday Night Football, Redskins, to make the Cowboys game as important as we think it might be. Um, and so it's good that they obviously didn't lose to the Giants. They are not, nowhere near tank mode. The season is not over. Peterson has not lost the locker room. Very, very glad they were able to stave off you know the impeding dread and be able to launch what was a 16-point comeback, you know, 22-3 to three, uh, final run there to, to to win it, man. And uh, we, we have not yet mentioned, because I was not on the post game show, that Jake Elliott remains one of the <laughs> best kickers in the league, especially when he's playing the Giants.
1: Yeah, he is the Giant killer. And before we flip it over to the offense, yeah. real quick, Ben, is there anybody else? If you were to give a game ball out for the defense and it's not Malcolm Jenkins – Tell me who it is, and oh, why are you stupid for not having it? Either be Fletcher Cox or Michael Bennett.
0: Yeah, so it's Fletcher Cox, um, and I'd love <laughs> to give it to Michael Bennett because those were the only three good players on the defense. Uh, no, they're the three most impactful, I should say. Yeah, Bennett remains fantastic, and yeah. I mean, absolutely just what Every a week. what a, what a signing, what a pickup, what a trade. You know, it, it's. Golden tape for a golden tape for a third, not looking too hot. Michael Bennett for a fifth more than makes up for it, in my opinion. Y'all can y'all yeah. can complain about tape for a third as much as y'all want. Bennett for a fifth is such a good deal, especially if and when Brandon Graham's potentially not retained. Listen, Bennett is a six million or excuse me, a seven million cap hit and then an eight million cap hit. Sheep. He is playing like a eight figure cap hit for sure. Uh and so those next two years on his deal are gonna be huge for Philly. But um, it's going to go to Fletcher Cox. And the reason it's got to go to Fletcher Cox is because he remains so disruptive and so not unproductive, but just he just does not turn out the the sack numbers that a an Aaron Donald does. And most defensive tackles just don't turn out the sack numbers that indicate how productive they are because that's the nature of playing defensive tackles what makes Donald an anomaly. But on a snap snap basis, just Cox causes you so many freaking problems. I think about... um. Uh, There was a cool quote from Vance Joseph, the head coach of the Broncos, who basically talked about the fact that they beat the Steelers because they said, listen, we're fine with Juju Smith-Schuster racking up yardage on us. We're fine with Vance McDonald racking up yardage on us. We need to stop Antonio Brown because that's the guy that can really kill us. Like when you go against the Eagles defense, it's like, listen, Michael Bennett can have two tackles for loss in a sack. Uh, You know, give Brandon Graham a tackle for a loss of sack and eight pressures. We got to make sure Fletcher Cox isn't murdering the quarterback within two seconds. Like, that's the number one priority here. Like, the other guys, if they're going to eat because we're putting attention on Cox, they're going to eat. Okay, you've got to make sure you lock down Fletcher Cox because he has the the ability to just take over drives, take over games. And that poor right guard, man, I don't (laughs) know who it is for the the Giants. Bennett (laughs) and Cox both just made his day long and arduous. It was rough. Uh, So I would give it to Cox. I think the uh, the story of the game is the success of the offense and the offensive yep. line. I think the defense did, you know, as well as you could expect uh, them to do with the injuries. Red zone performance, particularly impressed. But the offense to me is the is the real story. I thought that they, you're nowhere near like, you know, turning a corner. Um, but they got a lot of fight in them. And you really got to appreciate that.
1: Carson Wentz is finally clutch again, apparently. But look, for as much as the focus... This week has been on the running game, which, which is great. I mean, you finish a drive in the fourth quarter with five straight runs, which includes a touchdown and a two-point conversion. Your offensive line completely takes over the game. That's fantastic. So I'd love to see it every week. And if I had more game balls, I'd hand them out to Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson because they were spectacular in this game. But there was something that I highlighted before the game that I want to dial back to because I think it had a role not only in the running game, but overall for the offense as well. And it was an encouraging sign of balance, not from a run pass perspective, but from a personnel perspective, which we've been struggling with as we try to incorporate Golden Tate. And I know this is you know, a coach's film topic, but... Let me bring in some analytics to this Eagles chat because the, the Eagles are heavily invested in analytics and nerds are taking over the football world. Deal with it. All right. So before the buy, okay. the Eagles ran two and three tight end sets 45% of the time. Yes. After the buy, yes. those, yeah, those two games, 23%. So <laughs> Ben's already excited to talk about this. But what I did was I used the quant edge and we had Elliot Christ on here two weeks ago. Uh, to talk about fantasy football, but they have some great tools. And what you can do is you can filter when a player's on the field versus off the field, their success rates and whatnot. So I looked at the Eagles' success rate with and without Dallas Goddard on the field. On the field, the Eagles were 3% more successful rushing, 12% more successful passing, and you're getting a half-yard plus on the ground and a yard plus through the air per attempt. And that's 281 snaps versus 374 snaps without. So it's a decent sample size. This isn't a small sample size. Yes. So the Giants ranked second worst against 12 personnel coming into this game. So combine all that together, and it says that the Eagles should be using 12 and 13 sets. it has been what we've been saying on the show the entire time. I was about to say.
0: Thank you for that (laughs) 90-second long explanation of something that has been very obvious to the eye for many games.
1: Well, we yeah, exactly. So, look, it forced the Giants to counter with Big Nickel, where they have those three safety sets, which gives you a matchup and size advantage, both in the passing and in the running game. So in the first half, only 36% two and three tight end sets. In the second half, they bumped it all the way up to 61%. Ben, the difference in success for the Eagles against the Giants when it comes to the personal groupings, just yes. from 11 with three, three wide receivers to 12 with two tight ends, two yards more per play and a 13% bump in success rate with two tight end sets and then when they ran three (laughs) good that good (laughs) well it's not as good as when when they ran three tight end sets where they oh
0: my gosh hit me with it let me bask in it
1: 7.4 yards per play and an 80 percent success rate when they ran with three tight ends Ah! so i just threw a lot of numbers out there but here's the core message grow or peterson either one or both recognized that they were nerfing their offense by not using a better balance of 11 and 12 personnel. They had a much better blend of it against the Giants, and it paid off big time, especially in the second half when they went heavier, which is something, again, that we've been begging and begging for this show. Ben, we are smart.
0: Listen, thank goodness that Mike Grove listens to the podcast, Mike, because if (laughs) Mike Grove Shut up, Mike. (laughs) Goodness to catch up, Mike. Um, If Mike were to not listen to the podcast, then we would still be mired in 11 personnel. And this is what we were worried about with the Golden Tate trade was in part right. the fact that, all right, there's always trade like confirmation, like, you know, usage in the sense that when you get a guy, you want to use a guy to justify the guy. And I've kind of written a little bit and I might write more on depending on how much I like the evidence that that Tate right now, you know, uh, Groh's quote was like, it's been challenging integrating him into the offense. I would argue that's because they run two different offenses. They run one where Tate is on the field and not really doing anything, and the other where Tate's on the field and he's getting the ball no matter what. There's very few plays, in my experience, where Tate is on the field and might get the football depending on how things are read, you know what I mean? Like he's very often just the primary read on 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 a, on a on a concept on a progression or he's just the target on RPOs and on on package plays or he's just out there running a route that isn't particularly valuable or effective. You know what I mean? Like I I wish that, that there doesn't seem to be integration in the sense that Tate becomes a viable option for Carson in the sense that like Carson's still just feeding Ertz and Alshon the ball whenever he has the opportunity to read the field, which is fine because there's a great cash radius guys, great route runners and Carson's very accurate. So it's not like going poorly. It's just that we're taking, we're we're playing less of those plays. We're using less of those plays with the intent of just giving Tate touches that he hasn't necessarily earned beyond the fact that he was traded for. And that's why I don't really think, you know, the integration has been challenging. I don't think there's been an integration period. I think there's just like, these are Tate plays. And then these are, this is the offense. And sometimes yeah. we run Tate play, sometimes we run the offense. It feels very much so like how Tavon Austin was force-fed the ball by Jeff Fisher, which obviously I'm not comparing Tate to Austin, just kind of that philosophy of things. And so I just think they need to stop trying to get Tate the football and start just letting Tate be one of the receivers in 11 and 12 personnel. And when he's open, he'll get the ball. And it'll be okay if he does and okay if he doesn't, as long as the offense is scoring points, right? So that's that's kind of – um. A digression there. So we were worried that when Tate would come in, he would draw away from 12 and 13 personnel because they'd want to get three wide receivers out in the field. That's what you were seeing. And then all of a sudden, when it became time to go to the running game, and Philadelphia really felt like the offensive line was getting good movement, then you see 12 and 13 personnel make a bigger appearance. And it's funny because generally speaking, you want to run out of 11. You want to run right. out of 10 because you want yeah. to lighten the box, pull guys outside, Uh, And then you have a a, a smaller amount of defenders to deal with as far as breaking tackles and blocking. But, and this is the crux of the matter that we've been talking about, not trying to toot the horn here, but really just this is a, a fundamental thing about Philadelphia's personnel to understand. Philadelphia can go 12 and 13, go heavy in the box on one snap, and then come out no huddle, come out hurry up, which is something you saw them do no huddle a ton in the third quarter. And still spread things out in twelve and thirteen personnel, and that's that's huge. Teams can't do that. Most teams in the league do not have the personnel to do that. All right, Tennessee can do it with Johnu Smith and Delaney Walker when Delaney Walker was healthy. Cincinnati maybe could do it with 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 Croft and with Eifert and Azuma when Eifert was healthy. No team has a three deep at tight end like Philadelphia. So use it. And that's what you saw in the third quarter. Now, it translated into the running game, but still, Philadelphia was successful throwing the ball in the second half as well out of these sets, as you alluded to. So, the running game gets the credit, and I think a lot of that belongs to the offensive line, but really, it's Philadelphia's ability to dictate personnel of the defense, but still remain diverse in the formations, And, and dividing personnel from formations are very important. So... The, the same personnel, 12 and 13, but various formations puts the defenses in situations that they are not built to handle. Defenses in today's league are built to handle 11 personnel. Philadelphia can put out 12 and 13, but still run formations you typically see with 11. That is a problem. Uh, if they've got their finger on the pulse, which it seems like they kind of do, then they should continue to run this to ground. This, if anything's going <laughs> to save the offense, it's this. We've been saying yeah. it and I still believe it. So,
1: Ben, I'm uh, heated so up, I'm baby. S- I'm
0: feeling good. It's I nice to be back tell. in the
1: seat. That was a whole clap emoji tweet. That was amazing. So, uh, the one thing I, I will say, in, and we'll kind of go into some quarterback discussion here, that the Eagles did struggle with. And look, I thought James Betcher did a really good job with a bad defense with his game plan because when he dialed up heat,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: was often, he, he dialed up the blitzes on 32% of the dropbacks against the eagles he got two sacks out of those eight blitzes uh 1.8 yards per play and a 20 percent opposing success rate for the eagles so when he brought the blitz it was definitely hitting but when he didn't they couldn't they couldn't cover man and they couldn't stop the run alec ogletree looked like a mess those linebackers are terrible terrible in coverage they even tried disguising thing pre-snap you know they they give motion all these teams are using motion now and and it's trending up every year and the Eagles use it a lot because it's a pre-snap indicator whether you're getting man or zone coverage the Giants tried mixing it up showing that they were playing man and then switching to zone after the play and that's the one where Alec Ogletree missed the tackle on Zach Ertz for the touchdown so Wentz started to deal get into a rhythm in the second half uh it, it was funny too because you come into this game for Carson Wentz And there's this big talk about you not being clutch. And then there's the report from Ian Rappaport that I I talked about a little bit uh, on the recap show. But there's a report that he's not fully back from his recovery. Well, no crap. He tore two ACL or an ACL and an LCL in his knee. And that was in December. It hasn't even been a full year yet, but I think we tend to forget it when we talk about Carson Wentz because after the Colts game, he looked so darn good. You didn't really necessarily think about it, but that is something that we have to put out there. Either way, all that got quieted down in the second half. Last drive, showing that he's clutch, giving 43 of the 50 yards on that drive to set up the game-winning field goal for Jake Elliott. I thought overall Carson Wentz just had a, a solid game. There was good pocket movement in that game, and you know I thought I, th- I thought he had a good day. Ben, what did you see from him?
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with you in the sense that I'm very glad that Carson picked up his game winning drive, his fourth quarter comeback. Because while you can use those stats to push a narrative that's that's too aggressive, it it was and is, and it was something that I've been sharing. Very concerning oh, yeah. to me that Carson was not. Completing these drives and the fact that he got one under his belt is great. Now, obviously, Carson, I don't think has thrown a game-winning touchdown pass. I don't think that's something that he's done yet in his three years. We've had some game-winning drives ended in field goals or ended in runs, whatever.
1: Bold prediction: He does it against Dallas. Let's go, baby! You know, we're,
0: so we're still we're still kind of chasing the great white whale at that point. Right. But it was very I was very glad to see him get that that game-winning drive. Now, from a play perspective, I still think that yes, Carson has some good pocket movement things. I still think he gets a little bit too. Oriented on his whole, like I'm gonna break four tackles in the pocket thing. Um, I'd like to see some earlier escapes from him. I'd like to see him be more willing to break the pocket and run because he's a very good athlete on the move. Uh, and that's 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 a complaint that I've had even on Carson's best games. So that doesn't worry mm-hmm. me too much. And then also I think that. Especially on money downs, he can decide where he wants to go with the football a little bit too early. A lot of what we've been talking about as Carson's issues this season, and you've seen on his interceptions, is that Carson makes up his mind when he's going deep that he's got it, and he doesn't really check uh, to see if a safety is overlapping, a corner is coming to help. And you've seen a couple of interceptions as a result of that. Well, Philadelphia really didn't take very many deep shots. In this game against the Giants, Mike. And against the secondary that they could have if they wanted to. And the Giants have given up explosive long plays.
1: They were giving up the middle of the field. Yeah, exactly. And and
0: there's nothing wrong with taking that. And this will forever be an intermediate middle of the field offense. This is always going to be an offense that likes to attack in between the numbers, especially across the intermediate level. And they got, you know, Zach Ertz on their wide crossers. And they got Alshon Jeffrey on his (laughs) little dig routes and whatever. Okay. I don't think they hit Alshon on a digger out in this game, but regardless.
1: Hit him on, an, on some slants, did some RPs, yeah. yeah.
0: What what you're what you didn't see in this game, what stood out to me is is Carson had an interception against Jacksonville that was a result of a overlap coverage from a corner, interception against New Orleans in the same situation, all these deep balls. He had 20 plus air yards down the field. Uh, you didn't see any of that in this game. They kept yeah. the depth of target very shallow for Carson. That worked. It's not gonna work forever. And I don't think they're, you know, taking the ball out of Carson's hands deep. But it did give him what was in generally a very mistake-free game. His only interceptable pass was when B.J. Hill nearly jumped a curl route, you know, and couldn't catch it because he's a defensive tackle and he doesn't have hands.
1: If I can say that, it was a very Cam Newtonish game under under Norv Turner this year kind of game because Carolina doesn't take that many shots and they, they've they worked on making Cam a more efficient short to intermediate passer, which Cam is great at. I felt like that was like this type of game for Carson. Not sure if it works long term, but yeah, I, I I would agree with that as far as what they were going for in this game.
0: Absolutely. And I think it makes sense because it lets you calibrate and kind of slow Carson a little bit. It, lets it it helps him chill out. Uh, You know, a guy who's a clearly been... He had
1: to after that performance. He had to get in a rhythm after that performance. Right,
0: exactly. A guy who's clearly been you know by by even the most optimistic and and kind of evaluations out of outlooks who's been pushing it who's been trying to win the game for his team which i'm never going to fault him for that, you know, It's that's that's good, but uh, the, the the reality is that they kept his depth of target shallow, he attempted one pass that went beyond 20 yards down the field, now that I'm looking at the chart and a lot everything was just between the numbers between pretty much the 5 and the 15, which is where this offense makes its bread and butter we just didn't see a ton of deep shots that's not how they want the offense to look, but I think it was a good resettling game for Carson he didn't, a yeah. very mistake-free game kept the offense on schedule uh, most of Like his negative plays, like his sacks were mostly just offensive line getting beaten very quickly. Uh, And I don't think he missed a ton of open receivers or anything like that. Just a generally sound game from him, I agree. This wasn't like, you know, him powering the team to a crucial victory. It was really the team doing it together, which is good. Um, But it wasn't necessarily like a statement game for Carson or anything like that.
1: So, Ben, let's go to three words, man, before we get out of here. And then, you know, on the next episodes, we'll be covering this preview against the Washington Redskins. But I want to hit up three words here before we go. First up, and this is something I, I want to hear your opinion. I don't on, have it ben,
0: pulled up because it was days ago, so it's all you.
1: I, all right, I got a few for you, Ben at Benjamin Dubs. Solid first name, I'm sure you like that. It says relieved, not excited. Ben, are you excited? And also, follow up question: Are you excited about Josh Adams?
0: Uh, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm excited because stuff matters now. Like it's like things are interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. We get to care about the season for at least the next week, probably the next two weeks and potentially more, you know. I don't necessarily think Philadelphia's a Super Bowl contender, but sure it would be fun to win the division twice in a row. Uh yeah. it would be great to end the season strong. You know, if we're talking about this team Definitely. going if if this team goes eight and eight, Mike, let's say this team goes eight and eight, they'll be ending the year on a four and two run. That's okay. You know what I mean? That's 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 like that's that's a positive thing. And so like there's reason to be excited about this season because you can still end on a strong note and feel good about it and feel like you overcame some adversity. And that's a great thing for a a, a, a program a, a, a team from a year to year perspective. So there's that Josh Adams had his best game as an Eagle. Uh, he mm-hmm. made good plays. There's a shame that 51 yard touchdown was pulled back. Obviously he was untouched on it, but he had a great little burst through the third level. It was very nice to see. He still is not very good. Uh, He's the best runner in a stable between Wendell Smallwood and Corey Clement, who's not bad at all. Corey's just struggling to find the daylight that Adams is finding. You know, that's just the reality of it.
1: And I thought Corey had his best game this game too and go figure the offensive line had taken over in this game. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, is Adams going to be a part of the Philadelphia committee in 2019? He'll have every opportunity to be so. Uh, Is Adams a guy you want getting more than you know, this a guy you won't get any significant touches in a game. No, you want to improve upon him. Uh, uh, this was a good game from him, but he's still a very limited player.
1: Yeah. And like I've said, I don't care who gets the freaking ball. Go with the hot hand. And right now Adams has the hot hand and I commend Gro for sticking with him. Yeah, he's clearly he's game. clearly
0: filling himself. And so oh, just yeah. feed him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Feed the man. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Lonis at not Lonis, which is confusing, says Kamu for a president. <laughs> So I like that because I think I think even though it's a small sample size for Camu compared to somebody like Nigel Bradham, I think Kamu's been, other than Jordan Hicks, has been the best linebacker on this team. Again, small sample size. I think he's playing better than Bradham. Just going to put it out there. I think Bradham is definitely underperforming. Got to
0: move Bradham back to Mike. Let Jordan Hicks yeah. walk. Move Bradham back to Mike. See what happens.
1: And, and Bradham picked up a knock, apparently, on the first series of this game. So I won't judge him too harshly on this game, even though I didn't think he played all that well, especially in the first half. At Natsu Ventino says, no Ed Oliver with a sad face emoji. Apparently, he thinks this loss knocks the Eagles out of contention for a pick that will have them high enough to get Ed Oliver. However, I just read a mock draft from you for the DraftNetwork.com, where Ed Oliver fell a little bit. Ben, Ed Oliver falling in the draft, the Houston defensive tackle. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah. So uh, Ed came into the season uh, as a um, top two player. He is still very, very, very good. But I think he's the third best pass rushing defensive tackle in this draft. And And that's going to matter because pass rush is very, very important. And Quinton Williams out of Alabama has exploded. Obviously uh, doing an incredible job. You know, insane the fact that he was not a starter. And now he's just gobbling up everybody who faces him. Quinton's been a monster. And then Jeffrey Simmons out of Mississippi State will have some off field questions to answer. But, uh, is a better pass rusher than Oliver, has been more productive against tougher competition, and just has better traits. He's, he's, he's gonna be about 20 pounds heavier than Oliver. He's gonna be longer than Oliver, and he's gonna have more power than Oliver does. Uh, Oliver's quickness is exceptional. Uh, he's very stout. He plays with fantastic leverage, great hand placement, a ton of good stuff. I do not think he is the best player at his position. I think Quinn Williams is a better overall player, and then yeah. I think teams, will potentially value Simmons more, especially if they already have their under-tackle, their three-technique, their guy who's going to play a little bit closer to the outside. If they need somebody who plays more so at the one-tech spot, Simmons makes more sense. It's going to be over 300 pounds. So yeah, there's, there's a reality where Oliver slides a little bit. Philadelphia, I don't think, unless they went 4-12, and 12, was ever going to be in, in striking distance for him. Uh, and so I don't think that was always a pipe dream. Uh, But Philadelphia, listen, it's an insanely good defensive tackle draft uh, class. And you're looking at four guys who fit the mold for Philadelphia, all being potentially in round one. Uh, and, and Philadelphia's picking in the high teens. You could see a Jerry Tillery out of Notre Dame or a Sean Gary, who just right. uh, declared as an underclassman, as a junior out of Michigan, can potentially be there to play a penetrating three technique role, which Philadelphia mm-hmm. can, uh, uh, you know, if, if Timmy Jernigan does not have a long term future with the team, that's a big need of theirs. So uh, even if the Eagles don't get Oliver, it's a very strong class at the position. They're going to be fine.
1: That's funny. I just did a quick search, and Juventino had said uh, trade-off for Ed Oliver coming when the news dropped about Timmy Jernigan. That was back on May 3rd, so he was way ahead of you, He's
0: ready for it, baby.
1: (laughs) Ben, I think that does it for us on this show. Next up, we're going to be previewing – you want to do the Redskins offense first because I've been watching some Colt McCoy.
0: Oh, wow. You're making me watch Colt McCoy. Okay. Um,
1: (laughs) Yo, uh, look, I'm going to give a teaser they were still like really aggressive with their concepts against the uh, the Cowboys the I was surprised
0: it was one of my favorite things to say. when you're a backup quarterback in you you need explosive plays chuck yep. it one on one coverage 50 balls <laughs> your best chance just send yep. it here we go of course Philadelphia did the exact opposite with Nick Foles but it works I'm not going to complain
1: <laughs> so go ahead and say goodbye to the listeners before uh, after I tell them that the next show of the Kiss and so like show is going to be previewing the Eagles defense against the Washington Redskins offense in this week 13 matchup. If
0: you're still listening, despite the fact that I was gone last week. We thank you, as always, for listening to the KISS 2 and Solak Show here on Bleeding Green Nation. We appreciate you swinging by this. As always, I've been Benjamin Solak on Twitter, at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K-S, and Michael Kiss on Twitter, at Michael Kissed NFL. That's K-I-S-2. Like Mike said, tomorrow it is the Redskins offense against the Eagles defense. Hopefully, uh, we'll be getting some health, some uh, reinforcements in the secondary, which will help us bring this one home. Very important game and especially make sure you're watching that Dallas-New Orleans game on Thursday night. Dallas drops that one, as we expect, and Philadelphia is in a great position in the division. Not great, but much better than we probably anticipated a couple of weeks ago. If you want to leave some ratings, if you want to leave some reviews, those do help us tremendously. We've been getting wonderful feedback on these podcasts, and thank you to everybody who found uh, a way to reach out and told somebody to tell us to say that we like the podcast. That means just a world and a half to us and we appreciate you uh giving love so if you are enjoying the podcast a rating a review or hitting us up on twitter uh, we love to chat with you guys i've been ben he's been mike we'll catch you guys tomorrow
1: we all we got we all we need fly eagles fly hello i'm spencer hall from sb nation and i want to tell you about my new show it seemed smart